And I think it always comes back to the business owner and how they want to operate and what they want to get out of it. So the way that I think about business models for me as a business owner is starting with the end in mind, which is like, what am I going for? Really, what do I want? Hey guys, welcome back to the Wild Goose Chase. On today's episode, I was talking with Grant Muriel. He has owned 20 businesses. That's right, 20. Yes, that is symptomatic of entrepreneurial ADHD. He's owned 20 businesses or been a part of 20 businesses over the last 20 odd years. And in this episode, we talk, I actually really like this episode. We managed to really dig deep and really stitch some threads through things like board structuring, business model design, which was really, really good and something people don't think enough about. We also talked about leverage, compounding, lifestyle design, and so much more. This is a really great episode because it doesn't just kind of like gloss over some high level type stuff. And this actually really stitches in. And we really talk about really interesting stuff around identity of ownership and share structuring and dilution and raising. And it's really interesting. If you're a business owner who's interested in building a better business and wants to think more strategically around things like structuring and business model design and growth, this is going to be a great episode for you. So I can't wait to share it with you. And remember, if you're watching this on YouTube, which I hope you are, uh, make sure that you click subscribe and um, subscribe to the channel. It means a lot to me. If you are listening to this on Spotify or some other kind of place like, I don't know, Apple, whatever it is, then make sure you subscribe there and give us a review as well. It means a lot. There is no sales pitch in these episodes. This is all just to derive value for you, uh, the viewer and the listener. So I really appreciate if you could subscribe. It helps the channel to get more known. And I just want to deliver more value to more people and you can be a part of that. And thank you in advance for doing that. So without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. And I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Wild Goose Chase. Joining me on today's show is Grant Muriel. He is a podcast host, prolific business owner. Ser- can we call you a serial entrepreneur, Grant? Can we do that? I hate that. Yeah, I, I used to call myself a serial entrepreneur with ADHD, and I'm like, it was the worst tag life that I ever gave to myself. It was trash. That is very... So, sure, is... you can use it. Okay, cool. Use it. He's, uh, he is a breakfast serial entrepreneur, uh, not really, uh, investor, project manager, and enthusiast. He's been involved in many different businesses, business models, all kinds of stuff. Um, Grant, I'm super excited to have you on the show. How are you? Appreciate being here. Awesome. Cool. So... We have to naturally assume that the people watching this or listening to this have got no freaking idea who you are, despite the high quality of that introduction that I, that I gave. So why don't, why don't you give us a little bit of a kind of that? Also, nobody wants to hear your life story. I know everyone gets a lot of that kind of stuff. Why don't you give us a kind of like uh, what? highlight reel? Give us a kind of 30-second snapshot. Who are you and why should anyone care what you're going to say? Holy smokes. All right. So I've been doing business since I was like 16, currently 35-ish. So I call it about 20 years. Unfortunately, I was one of those people that just learned by failure, Goose. Like everything that you read in books around like what not to do and getting good at business is like what I decided to do. So <laughs> I've started way too many businesses, closed way too many, sold way too many. And then, yeah, over the journey, I've opened SaaS businesses, services business, coaching businesses, um, invested in businesses, exited businesses, done it all. And then as of right now, uh, cause I have two podcasts. One is business and investing with myself and a gentleman called Charlie and property and investing with myself and a gentleman called Charlie as well. Uh, yeah. And then sort of- Same Charlie. It's not just incidental. It's same not Charlie. incidental that they- <laughs> Yeah. And then- Just uh, happened just to have two podcasts with a guy named Charlie. Sorry. Sorry. Guys. Yeah, that's right. And then, yeah, we just sort of started um, a business as well called knowthescorefinance.com to help people with their bookkeeping. Business owners. Program. Love that. Love that. We can dig into all of that. How many businesses, because right, you said you've started too many, sold too many, owned too many, like a lot. Can you give us some numbers? Like how many do you currently own? How many have you owned over your 
we'll call it 20 year business career, 16 to 36 ish, right? Let's call it even 35, whatever you are. Um, how, give us some numbers there. How many have you sold? How many have you exited? That's really interesting. All right. So I'll, I'll unpick this. It was funny uh, in prep for this. I think it's sitting just above 20 businesses. And I reckon I've had way too many sort of business names and domain names and stuff like that kicking on. Um, I've exited, shooting from the hip on this one, probably about five, maybe six of them. Um, like I've just gone through an exit now on another one. And then as of right now, I actively are in the two podcasts, which you can call the businesses if you really want to. There's more just a fun engagement for challenging myself. And then I'm actively in sort of two slash three businesses and I sit on two boards. That's super interesting. So 20 businesses over 20 years, basically. It's kind of a- People take, yeah. It'll be about one a year, unfortunately. Do you think it's you would have been more successful- It's not a great way if, to build wealth, Goose. Just putting it out no, there. No, I was going to say, do you way. think you would have been more successful if you just like, I don't know, picked a two of them and just actually followed through rather than having 20 over 20 years? I always joke about it. So I got two really good friends, one of which has had his business since he was 17, and he's just had the same business forever, and he does seven figures a month now. And another friend of mine, ever since I met him, and I would have been about 18, has had the exact same business that he was building, and he's the same boat. <laughs> and I'm just looking at this, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, there is this uh, do one thing really good. Yeah. So, yeah, it's the idea of like, you know, you can go one inch in 12 directions or 12 inches in one direction type thing. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, like the, the, entre- the serial entrepreneur with ADHD, I think entrepreneurial ADHD is a real problem. You know, like- It is a problem. People- yeah, entre- entrepreneurs generally get massively bad cases of uh, shiny objectitis and they think of the coolest new thing and they want to do this and they want to do that without like, you know, leaning into a clearly well thought out strategy. So you said you've had about five or six exits. Have they been good? Have they been bad? What's the, you don't have to go into the details of them, but no, not, so, a lot of business um, owners don't ever exit, right? Most business owners never actually exit. So, and you've done that, that five or six times. That was a great one. The more recent one was awesome. So I, uh, it was a submarine company, which was exploring underwater assets. Um, I literally came on to help them sort of get started and think about marketing. And I got a couple of percent and then I exited for like five figures, which was nice at a $1.7 million valuation. So I had like a really small uh, percent of equity. Uh, so that was a nice little one. Uh, one previous to that was a business that I had a decent amount of equity in that I sold down at a was it a seven million dollar valuation or it might have been a five million valuation so i walked away with like a decent six figure sort of sum uh, another company i sold which was an e-com just under six figures uh yeah so some of them were more of a how do i get out of this so i can continue on focusing on the right things which was more like nice. recent exits uh some of the other ones were more mm, this was just not the best business for me to run can someone else take it off the hand? So I'd like usually try and sell it to like competitors. I'm like, hey, like we're yes. making it on Google really well. Do you want this thing? <laughs> so you got two places yeah. on Google. Um, but yeah, that was not an advantageous exit. It was more of a, I just want to get out. So the, the submarine underwater exploration company, was that like a consulting for equity type deal? Is that Was that basically the play? Completely, completely. And yeah. it was a very good alignment to sort of a business that I still run and I'm on the board for now. And so where you could do a lot of cross-selling but I just can't influence that cross-selling as much anymore because I'm on a board as opposed to actually operating in the business as an executive. So I'm like, like I can't influence this as much as I previously could. Talk to me about being on a board, right? So yeah. most people think of boards like big public companies and all of that kind of stuff. What are the, what's the scale of the companies that you are on the board for? And what do you actually do on the board? Yeah, uh, good question. So 
Uh, the scale of the businesses, so one's valued just sub at $20 million, uh, which I started about eight years ago with two other gentlemen. Uh, and another one has just got sort of, it's about five or six mil val. And these valuations are based on cash that we are currently raising at those vals. So it's not a throw a number in the air and try and grab a number. It's an actual like dollar figure. Like this is what they're worth based on what other people have invested in. And so the boards on both of those companies look quite different. So on the sort of the smaller one, yeah, the board's more dynamic, quicker to call on, more like how do we actually get this thing running faster, moving quicker and all those things. So it's more of a coaching capacity, mentoring capacity and a support where the other one's been around like eight years. So it's more of a strategic, like what is the one thing that you can move that actually helps the business grow fundamentally? And so if you were to peel that back one, one layer deeper, so the smaller business, like they catch up quite regularly, which is like a kind of like a odd way to run a board where the other one's like mandatory every quarter, uh, CFO jumps on, talks about debt, talks about raises, talks about profits. And like everyone just like shakes it down and says, what are we doing next? Interesting. When do you think businesses need to think about getting a board? Uh, this, this, is, this is a question that I've been thinking about myself quite deep because have you ever thought about the idea between like a bookkeeper and an accountant, like a tax accountant? What do you see is the difference? Let's kind of peel that back a little bit further, right? Because like we have a virtual CFO as well. So we've kind of got, and with it, so within our finance stack, we'll call it, we've actually got a spectrum and we've got in-house. So a, a bookkeeper to me is someone who reconciles the accounts, right? They're basically, what are the transactions that have come in, you know, double entry uh, bookkeeping type thing that goes from there to there. It's really reconciliation is the kind of view in my my perspective. An accountant, an accountant is someone who, effectively lodges your tax returns and makes sure that you meet your compliance obligations. And then a CFO is someone who strategically is like part of your strategic thinking team around how to navigate the business growth or business objectives in line with the finances and, and all that kind of stuff as well. So there's a level of strategic thought. So that's kind of how I think about it. What about you? Perfect. So I'll pull on that thread. So my view of like a bookkeeper slash what you're interpreting as like a virtual CFO, I kind of one in the same. Like a lot of business owners should actually just go to a bookkeeper and just say, hey, can you just tell me how I'm going with my goals and just tell me like where I'm spending yes. too much money? And they'd probably get very good insights compared to what they have now. But to sort of extract on what you're saying, from a board perspective, in a lot of scenarios, the boards are more that compliance layer. Like you have to catch up quarterly. You're looking for, val- like as a CEO, you're presenting to the board to look for validation around the strategy and trying to find some holes in it. What I actually recommend is most businesses need like your version of the virtual CFO slash bookkeeper, which is, hey, I've got this problem and I need to understand how to get through it, right? And so for me in business, I would actually much prefer to have like these advisors sitting there that I can call on whenever I would like to call on it for a problem or to problem solve different things, as opposed to going to a board once a quarter. And like, imagine you've got a problem before the quarter and like you're going to wait, <laughs> until the end of the quarter and you go, what? Well, that's just not going to help me out. And that's more of where a board gets to as it starts progressing forwards. When I'm like, business owners just need the helping hand now. Yeah. So is that kind of like, is that kind of like the difference though, between an advisory board and say a board of directors in a, exactly. in a context? And that's a difference. Total difference. Yeah. So I'd always go the advisory board versus a board of directors. Yeah. Okay. And so the board you're on is your advisory board. So they've got a panel of people who 
they basically the business owners or or whatever the shareholders will actually say the shareholders have uh, nominated right these are the people that we think are going to give good advice to whoever's going to be steering the ship the CEO a lot of people think the CEO this is a really interesting distinction you know my my title in um in our in my companies is CEO I'm CEO of a couple of businesses right now and most people think that the CEO is responsible for creating the vision and then executing the vision and then they go to the they go to the board for approval but that's actually not true right that's actually not true it's actually the board's role to decide the strategic vision and then the CEO's job to execute it is that is that what do you think about that statement so i've been on other boards and it's been very interesting to see how they operate and fundamentally change and it's i'll peel this one back a little bit more so i have a question for you and i'm going to jump back onto this so a board of directors does everybody on that board need to be a director uh, that's a good question, and I actually don't know the I don't know the correct answer to it. To be honest, my assumption so then, is that the answer is yes, but that may or would, may not be true. So you'd think that, right? Which means if people are directors, they probably have equity, and they'll probably have some kind of impact into it. Majority of the time, they don't not. need to have equity to be a director. You can be a you can be a well, you, you can be like a um, uh, what do they call them? a Ned Ned Neddy Ned non executive director non executive director. Have, yeah, <laughs> so you just don't have any like pull or push or anything like that. But the challenge with that is, on a board perspective, you want if someone's pushing for a strategy, you want them to have some kind of piece of the pie. Like you don't want someone just to sit mm. in the room and go, "Ah, here's my contrarian view. Don't do this, do this, or this is what I yeah. did back in my day." Like it's not going to add much value to it. And so, what I have seen in other boards is, yes, you do have some very, very active boards that sit there and say, "This is the vision. This is where we need to get to, and this is how we're going to operate." But on the other side, you see a lot of boards, like the one, one of the ones that I'm in, where it's almost a validation layer. So the CEO has gone out, usually with maybe the chairman of the board, built a strategy, validated strategy, and they come yes. back to the board for approval and recommendations, and that's almost it. It's like a dotting, dotting the I's, crossing the T's. And then they'll go and use the advisory side to build the strategy and build the plan in order for it to go and present back to Doesn't that just slow down growth and innovation though? Doesn't that just slow down growth and innovation? Because like, like, see, I'm super up for, I'm actually super up for having a board. I'm like, I think it'd be awesome for all of the things that you just pointed out, right? You get another set of eyes, you get all this and all of that kind of stuff. But the, the thought of me having to go and like, all right, I'm going to go sit down. I'm going to like build out some freaking plan. And then I'm going to, you know, you, you know, versus like we've been able to grow pretty quickly because we're able to move and iterate at speed because we know the direction we're going. We can then move and we can, without having to go through this kind of like slow, clunky bureaucratic approval process. Do you think that boards actually inhibit growth or and that's how why, do you think about that? That's why I prefer boards, like advisory boards. If it was an advisory board where you were able to go, I've got a finance problem. I'm going to go back to the finance representative of that advisory board. It's a win. Same with tech. Like we've got to go on the board that's all about tech. All right. What are you seeing in AI? What are you seeing people do in order for us to understand what we should implement across? And so this is where I'm like, there's board of directors i'm like advisory boards are a better approach let's talk about business model selection good, just, just a quick good pivot <laughs> well you know we've like hashed out let's hash out we've hashed out the board thing quite a bit but one of the things i really want to talk to you about um which i thought would be relatively pertinent because of your adhd your entrepreneurial adhd yeah. over the last 20 years is business business model selection and design and this is actually something that I'm really, really personally interested in. Like really thinking about like, I love thinking about structures and I love thinking about business model design and business model selection. Now, I would say that also 
when we started Dashdot, which is our main business, we weren't really like sitting down and strategically thinking like, what's our optimal optimal um, business model design? We've since evolved some elements of the business model, and but we but it's very hard to fundamentally change a business model once you've got one that's structurally structurally set up. And I would posit that most business owners or most entrepreneurs don't put any thought into what is my business model and is this business model specifically the best way to, to get me to whatever the destination or goal that I that I have uh, in mind. You know, like you might see someone who's got a coaching business and they've just seen how other coaches have a coaching business and they're like, oh, that's how you do it. You do these things and these things and you charge this way and you do stuff like that versus thinking laterally and going, okay, well, what could this be and what is the value I'm trying to create and how can I deliver it? So let's talk about business model selection. How do you think about that? And what's what's been what's been some winners and losers in the business models you've had? I think first off, the best starting point would be like the interpretation of like a business model. And so the way that I interpret business, and I'll preface this, way I interpret a business model is literally the way that you do everything in your business, right? So everybody starts thinking about, or oh, are you a subscription? Are you a one-off? Are you a bricks and mortar? Are you a virtual? Do you do coaching? Do you offer a physical product, etc.? All of those things are a part of a business model, but the best way that I can articulate it would be, I don't know, like franchises of restaurants, right? So you got like a, a subway where you can go and buy a franchise and just go and run it. And that is a business model that you were going into, which is a buying franchise that I have the lease and sort of operate it. But then you have the exact same business to the consumer in a McDonald's, where McDonald's go and buy the land, basically rent it back to the person, and then they buy the franchise and do all those kind of things. Fundamentally, a bit different business models, right? But to the consumer, there's fast food. And then you've got like a Chick-fil-A as well in the States, where they do a, a iteration of both of those kind of combined. All to the consumer, perceivably the same fi- same thing, but the way they operate behind the scenes is the difference in business model. And I think it always comes back to the business owner and how they want to operate and what they want to get out of it. So the way that I think about business models for me as a business owner is starting with the end in mind, which is like, what am I going for? Really, what do I want? Am I looking to try and build a cash cow that is spinning off $100,000 of profit every single month? And that's what I want. Or am I going to build a software as a service company that I want to exit at $100 million in 10 years' time, for example? Both of them guide the type of business that I operate in and the business models then get excluded from that, right? So if I want a cash cow that's going to make me a whole heap of money today, then I'm probably not going to start a software because it's going to take me so long to go and build it, go and sell it, and then actually start getting the value. So maybe the better business model might be, well, how can I build some kind of service that I can sell now and make profit now so that I can operate from it? So for me, the first step is to actually understand what a business model is, which is the way you do everything in business. Second one is understand the goal that you're going for. And then the third one is then start getting into the semantics around uh, subscriptions, one-offs. Do we care about service versus coaching versus product? Do we care about all of the other things? Yeah, I, I love that, right? Because what you said there is really interesting because there are different kind of layers to it, right? Because if you just use that kind of fast food restaurant analogy, the business model is, to, to in one lens, fast food, right? The business model is um, high-frequency um, exchange of food goods for cash, right? That's like, okay, that's one layer to think about it. There's an exchange of, of, good, uh, exchange of goods for cash, in that context, and it's food-based and, and stuff like that. But then the other layer into it is like, well, okay, what is the payment structure? What is the operating structure? What is the operating model? What is the monetization um, component of it? And that is where I think it gets really, really interesting because you're right. 
some people will think, oh, my business model is a, let's say a coaching business. Well, that's not your business model. No, 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 no. That's just like effectively your definition of products and services is that you're going to be doing coaching as opposed to how is the business going to make money? How is the business going to deliver those goods or services? How is the business going to run internally? How is the business going to attract? And so the business like business model comes down to, as you say, it's like a, it's a full, full, complete set of considerations around what is going to make the business successful or what is the thesis around what is going to make the business successful. You know, and even in industries, I don't know, you could have a, let's say you've got a, I don't know, an insurance company. You could have a business model uh, as an insurance company that sells one, the business model could be, we're going to do direct to consumer digital marketing and sell one off, what do you call them, policies, like upfront policies. And uh, we're going to do that without any salespeople and we're not going to have any offices, right? And then that starts to make up, okay, what does this business model look like? Versus someone who could sell the exact same insurance policies who says, okay, we're going to target B2B and we are going to, we're not going to spend any money on digital marketing, but what we're going to do is we're going to employ a um, direct sales force that's going to go effectively cold calling and door knocking and to build credibility, we want to have uh, we want to have a shop front in every town that we're in, so that people can come into the store. And by the way, we're not going to sell one-offs. We're only going to sell the policies on a subscription basis, so we get a recurring revenue model. All of these different considerations can really shape someone's success because if you don't put any thought into it, you can very well find that you're in the wrong vehicle to get you to where you want to go. And you can actually find, okay, why aren't I making money? Just a kind of like a small micro component of that. When we started Dash Dot, the prevailing way for people in our industry to charge was to charge a very small amount up front and then charge um, the bulk of the the rest of the fee at the completion of the service. So we didn't have any, we were just copying what everybody else did. So we were doing exactly the same thing and we were growing really quickly and we were signing up all these clients and we were broke. We had no money. We were like, what the hell is going on? (laughs) We're like, we're like literally, because we we were not sophisticated business people. Like we were like, wow, what is going on? Like, we're crushing it. We're signing up all these clients, but we're broke. There's no money in the bank. What is going on here? And thankfully, we had um, uh, a friend who's 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 only just slightly ahead of us in business, and he's like, "Oh, it's because of the cash timing." And I was like, "Why hadn't I thought of that?" And, and then he's like, and he was in a completely different industry, and he said, "Why don't you just charge up front?" And I was like, "No one does that." <laughs> he's like, "Well, why not? Why don't you just do it?" And I was like, "Holy shit!" And so then I went literally went back and then started. We just said I, the way we do it is is 100 up front, and people paid 100% up front. There was no friction and it completely changed our growth trajectory because we thought about how to change one of those components inside of our business model. So, and that, know, do you have any thoughts on that? That's a little bit there. Totally. Because that was, it was funny when I first started out, uh, just, just so you know, like I studied at university business and majored in entrepreneurship. So yes, good I'm an actual certified entrepreneur. <clears throat> just saying. Uh, to which they don't really teach you too much about business model design. However, they teach you around sort of other fundamentals. And so I came out of this going, I think I understand a lot about it. And all of my first businesses, the way that I would look at improving my business model was leverage. Like that was it. It was, so I went from building one-off websites and I'm like, oh man, I have to keep selling people to then going, I, I need a service that's subscription. So I went and started doing SEO. And then I'm like, ah, oh, I've got too much team and I just deal with buyers all the time what's going to be the next best one. So then I'm like, well, I could just use the SEO team to go and do e-commerce sites doing drop shipping. So I went and opened three of them. Uh, so then I'm like, cool, okay, well, this is going to be a better profit margin. Okay, what's the next thing on, and obviously high leverage because I don't need to fulfill the products. I just go on and send an email and someone else does it. 
I'm like, there's still not enough leverage. What's going to be the next leverage? And then I started building software as a service product. And so all I ever did was keep chasing this forever cycle of like leverage and any profits that I had every single month, I would just go, let's go and reinvest it. And so my objective was to continue building until I found like this perfect sweet spot. Like, no, this is too hot. No, this is too cold. This is right. Uh, and I just never found it until I got to a point where obviously I got into uh, two software as a service companies and uh, like the end goal was let's go and sell them for a hundred million dollars. And the business models were subscription. It was like great enterprise subscription, three-year contracts. This is how you're going to get really good uh, leverage as well as really good valuations. But when I came back to me as a business owner, I'm like, what am I actually going for? I'm like, do I actually care about having my face on the front of a magazine on like this massive exit? So then what I found was that it was a really, really good business model, like a fantastic business model that everybody valued very highly. But for me, it was irrelevant. So then I came back and I said, okay, well, what is the business model that's actually going to support my goals, which is, as we've spoken about before, which is like generating wealth outside of the business. And then I started going back to the drawing board saying, well, what is the business model that I actually want to operate in order to get me to where I want to go? And so that whole journey I've just explained, Goose, was probably like 10, maybe 13 years of just like forever improvements only to land at a point of just going, well, the better question is, what the hell do I want? And then trying to find a business model that kind of gets me there. And then the final piece to it is uh, iterative iterative improvements on top of the business model. So it's like when I build a business model and it starts doing the thing I want it to do, a lot of people think that in order to change their business model, they have to fundamentally pivot. So, okay, I'm not offering services anymore. I'm offering software. And it's not true. You can improve your business model by micro changes. So maybe you start fulfilling offshore instead of onshore or like a hybrid for a services business. So you do some onshore and some offshore. Like that is just a, that is a minor business model pivot. Maybe you can automate a couple of things in your business now instead of using manual labor. That is also a business model pivot. It's like these micro improvements, which is what I focus on every month, every quarter to say, how can I just tweak this business model until it gets to this perfect point where I'm just happy with it. And so I wish it wasn't the case. And I just knew this when I started out going, totally smokes. We finally got there. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Particularly like the the decision to go enterprise subscription, all of that kind of stuff. Did you choose that based on around a valuation thesis? Okay, if we choose this business model, we're likely to get the highest valuation over time, et cetera. And the reason I ask, and this is really interesting and relevant because we've built some pretty wild prop tech. Um, it's very good, highly valuable. And transparently, we are looking to grow a billion dollar company in four years, which as I'm sure you will appreciate, is not a small consideration. <laughs> it's know, not a small a friend, consideration. A friend of mine's got a billion um, dollar company. But it's a no, very go. few Can, far between. Yeah, the guy who well, runs- I would, love, uh, an intro- I would love an introduction to ask him. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. I, yes, actually. Yeah, cool. Hook me up because I, I want to chat to them about that. Because obviously it can be done. You can, can grow a billion dollar thing in four years. It can be done. So it's not like it's an undoable thing. But then you do need to, you can't accidentally do that. You've got to deliberately do that. So then it's a consideration of, and this has been a real, real thought process for me specifically over the last uh, month or so. As I've been in, I've been in the US and I've been going to go. Well, we've got this thing. We know that it's really valuable. There's all of these different ways that we can structure the business model. Um, how are we going to take it to market? Who's our target market? What's the delivery mechanism? What's all of these different things to then thread the needle and go? 
a combination of what is going to get us to the right trajectory, but what is also within our capabilities, right? And so when I say within our capabilities, you've got things naturally like resource constraints. So if like if we talk about enterprise, maybe the sales cycle is 12 months, right? And then maybe there's a small payment upfront and then there's an integration period and then there's some other kind of thing. And and maybe that's high value, but also maybe if you don't have the burn rate that is um, going to, or if, you, if your burn rate's too high and you don't have the cash reserves to be able to support the sales cycle, you could find yourself running short and then having to raise capital uh, on a valuation that is significantly lower because you actually haven't got the sales and revenue coming in to prove out the thesis. And so it's all kind of still vaporware at that stage versus potentially going, okay, maybe we want to end up in the kind of upstream or the kind of like top end of the market, but maybe we start mid-market and maybe we target target people who have got a faster sales cycle um, that are slightly less sophisticated. We'll need to then apply some resources instead of delivering it via APIs. Maybe we need to build some kind of UX UI interface. So we need resources for that. Is that going to be a better combination of resource allocation and time versus then uh, also potentially going direct to consumer, which you know, what I've discovered is the further the further you go down the sophistication ladder, if you go all the way up, if you're particularly in the information product space and data product space, if you're at the top of sophistication ladder, you probably don't really need much UX or UI. You just need to explain the value to them and you can plug in an API and off you go. Then you get to the mid-market. They need something a little bit prettier. They need to be able to just like swipe a credit card and log in and use it, but it doesn't need to be fancy. But then when you get down to the bottom of the sophistication layer, it needs to be dumbed down. So if like, so any anyone on the street can use it and it's got to be pretty as hell or no one's going to pay any money for it. And within that is real considerations of how you think about growth, resource allocation, timing, go to market, and then what skills you've got to be able to support that as well. Totally. And you hit on quite a few interesting points there. So your first question was like, what made us go down towards the enterprise? One of the biggest things that I look at in business when I'm, or when I'm trying to build something, and again, this comes back from doing it the hard way way too many times which is like, where is your unique advantage? And my two co-founders, one was uh, the VP of projects of one of the largest mining companies in the world. So he had a serious pedigree sitting behind him (laughs) of just a great network of people who want to buy the thing that we built. And the other one had a uh, project management resources company who sold into like high, like sort of the top 500 sort of companies in Australia and even over in Asia, et cetera. And so for me, it was more of a, well, where do we have a black book that we can just sell into, that we can get a proof of concept build where if you were to try and go hit a thousand or 10,000 users or sort of small to business, small and medium business owners, because we're a project management software, like you're going to come up against all these massively funded businesses. So for us, it was great. We've got this unique advantage where we've got intros into executives of massive like companies like banks, councils, et cetera, um, which means that you can get it in the hands of people. And on the other side, it did have come with good valuations because you're signing contracts for 100, 500,000 person seats for three to five years. But then on the other side as well, uh, the valuation that comes through, which means the money that people are willing to give to you um, is fantastic as well, which means that then we do have massive burns, like six-figure monthly burns with from a cash that was raised either through equity or debt in order for us to progressed into the next stage and so that was how we started off going into where we're going into now um and it has just always been that and that has more now it's geography location so they just opened up their us uh, uk office sorry literally like two weeks ago and it's just let's just go and rinse and repeat the exact same approach which is partner delivery um increase the valuation go and sell down either some more equity or raise some more debt to go for another big swing um and then try and go for a sort of a bigger exit and so 
to your point, it was more, what is the opportunity that you have available to you? And where is the gap in the market that you can actually go and utilize in order for you to not try and reinvent the wheel or not try and create a community of people that you don't have? How do you think about dilution? Like particularly if your kind of like growth model is centered around increased valuation, not necessarily cash flow, increased valuation, raise capital, like raise equity, right? Basically, which means dilution for current shareholders and stuff like that. How do you think about dilution as it relates to like founder equity? Um, particularly if the founders are still operating founders, like they're still in the business doing stuff. I'd love to get any insights you've got on that because obviously no one wants to be diluted just endlessly at the end of the day. And how do you think about structuring things like, you know, let's say you start the business and everyone's got, there's three partners and everyone's got 30, 33% or whatever, but then over to, and then you take on an investor who takes out half of it or whatever. But then if you're still in the business, actually having a structured approach that you're over time, you're earning shares back in. So you're actually offsetting the dilution. Have you kind of got any thoughts around that? Because I think this is a real, it's a real blind spot for a lot of, for a lot of business owners. And for people who are looking to like raise money and have got business partners in this situation, it's actually a point of huge friction as well. Right. And so I've been through situations where like I've sold down equity uh, at a seven figure valuation. I sold down a, a fraction of it for it. So here you go, I use specific numbers. So at the time we were valued, I think it was like 7 million bucks, maybe 6 million bucks. And I sold down out of what I owned about 5% of the company because I wanted to sort of exit or take some money off the table, right? And the the interesting challenge when you come up to that situation is you have your sh- sort of business partners that are like, but why? <laughs> it's like, well, why do you want to take money up? Like, we're all in this together. Like, this is all sort of evensies. Like, why do you get this exception to sort of take it away? We don't, right? Like, we're all in this. Are we a pack of, like, three musketeers to the end of the earth, or are you not? And, like, even just to have that conversation is tough, let alone to have people that would support it and do all those things. And and the way that I actually got through it transparently is I actually gave them a sales commission. So I said, cool, like, I want to sell down, and I will actually take a chunk of the cash that I sold down, and I'll put it back into the business, some of it cash in kind, and then... On the other side, some of it was going to be debt. And so that was a way to make sure that we can continue to support. Then another guy sold down and sort of we did the same thing. We even faced the, the point of one of the three said, hey, I, I don't want to be the CEO of this business anymore. I actually want to go out and sort of be a career executive again. I'm like, well, how do you deal with that? <laughs> and so, yeah, so he was su- super kind in the way that he sort of structured and supported his equity through the growth that we had. And like all of these situations just randomly pop up. And I think it really comes back to the people that you end up partnering with who know your personal situation, know that you're not trying to, in my situation, I wasn't trying to pull one over anybody. And same with the, the business partners. I think it's more those open conversations. And then so that's part one, which is like, how do you deal with it? Uh, part two, which was your point around dilution. Now, I have had so many thoughts and so many conversations around this, right? Especially when you put in, so we're on our third CEO in one of the businesses at the moment. One of them wasn't great and did not do very well for the business. And we raised probably a little bit too much debt. And the inverse impact that that had was I actually had to re-enter the business for a couple of years with one of my co-founders and work us through uh, that debt, etc. Now, in order for us to work us through that, um, we actually ended up diluting uh, with sort of the other business partner at the same time, which... Like it was all of our decision to put in sort of the CEO. It was all of our decision to approve the debt that was raised. It was all of our decision to do all of these things. 
And at the end of the day, you're like, now I'm diluting because someone else didn't do, in our, or in my personal view, didn't do what they should have done. And their pedigree was probably not as high as you initially thought before you put them in the role. And you kind of just have to sort of take the hit on the chin. And so every time I've had to dilute, which there've been quite a few, I've just seen that as a tad, was it a Keith Cunningham dumb tax? Like it's, you're doing this because you haven't made good decisions or you're doing this because you're trying to get yourself out of a sticky situation or you're doing this or you need to do this because you're not where you should have been or not where you thought you would have been. Unfortunately, it comes back to the way that I, I can only think about it as it comes back to would you rather 1% of something versus 100% of nothing. Uh, as hard of a pill as that is to swallow, um, hence why it always comes back in my view to what is the actual goal you're going for? Because if you want, to your point, if you want a billion dollar exit, I don't know why you want a billion dollar exit. I don't know why you would enjoy eating that glass and maybe we can cover that. But it's like, well, it's just part of the journey then. And so I actually got to a point where I'm like, is this the journey I want to be on for where I want to be? Like, can I still get my business fulfillment elsewhere whilst also achieving my personal goals without dealing with this so much uncertainty or so much peaks and troughs, et cetera? Yeah. And yes, that um, was a huge roundabout way of answering your question. No, no, that's that's and fine. Opening so many really... wounds right now. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Bleed out a little bit. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Bleed out. No something something interesting there, though, that if that uh, that I was picking up was around the concepts because a lot of business owners have so much identity tied in with the business, like they are the business. The business is them. The the like totally. they couldn't imagine like they don't think of it think of it as a product or a place or a thing, and so. You know, thinking about your the co-founder who said, "Hey, I I want to go and work somewhere else now. I want to go back to being a career executive." It's like, oh my god, what do you mean? You're going to leave the business? It's Holy like dude. the business Need is not the individual. Like so, yeah. and I remember I remember a while ago, I because naturally when you start a business, it is all consuming. You are it. It is you. It is all of that kind of stuff. But I got to a point where I was I just realized or whatever kind of identified that I have a job in the business, just like everybody else. Like, I have a job in the business. Now, I am in a position that nobody can fire me in my job, but I have a job. I have a salary. I get paid to go to work to do a job. And there is a very big difference between Goose, the employee that does a job, and Goose, the shareholder, who is, in fact, an investor right in the business. And they are two wildly different things. And you can be a shareholder of a And once you dissect yourself in those two ways and you think about, you've got to wear two hats. I wear two hats all the time. I'm like, okay, am I wearing my CEO hat? What decisions am I going to make in the business? Cool. Am I wearing my shareholder hat? Okay, is this in the best interest of the shareholders, et cetera? You know? And so it's a really interesting kind of thing to thread because I think a lot of people miss that because they're too wrapped up in the identity that they have with the business. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> totally. Uh as you walk through that, the immediate thing that I remembered was like, so I've been, I've sat on the board the whole time, right? Very fortunate to be a founder on the board. But then as I was running the business, I'd like run the business. So I'd know all the problems and all everything we're facing and day-to-day challenges, et cetera. And then I'd have to go up to the board level and think strategically of like, like up in their clouds thinking and everything. And I'm like, oh man, like you don't know what we're doing. <laughs> it's right now. And that context switch is insane. Right, because you're sitting there trying to like, well, what if money was not a constraint, Goose? What if resourcing was not a constraint? Like, how would you solve these problems? Where could you? And be? I love that. If that what ha- is that what happens on a board? Is that the kind of totally. shit that goes on on a board? Like, dude, I'm going to get on the some advi- boards. That's my favorite place to be. The advisory side, but the challenge is like, imagine that you're an executive of the company, and you know 
where all the hidden bodies are. You know where the challenges are. You currently know like the team members that are facing challenges or the team members that are leaving or the positions that you're not fulfilling because during COVID there was just impossible to find people, right? And then you're going into like this advisory board meeting and you're just like, well, yeah, let's think in the clouds, like as if there was no limitations. And then straight after that finishes, you go back to like solving the immediate problems of like, well, I've got to find a new employee for this. And you're just like, oh man, like that context, which is, is insane. But even to that point, one of, and again, just in light of me just being completely transparent and just opening all my wounds and just giving you a bag of salt to rub into them. One of the biggest challenges that I had was sitting on a board and we we're, were looking to do a bit of a raise and we we're looking to go and really hard. So we actually, this company invested recently into two other businesses. They opened over in the UK and started sort of a, a co-business with someone else, which we went and put six figures into. And then in Australia, we opened another entity where we went 50-50 with another business, which is going to be announced in six months. And we went and put another six figures in that, right? So a huge sort of capital outlay. Um, and for me, like the business actually owed me some money. And so I'm sitting on the board going, oh, I would love to get paid back. But then I have to put my shareholder hat on and it's like, well, you're a founder. <laughs> like, you're not, you're not going to get some of your money back. And I'm like, oh, man. And so the internal conflict of like at home when I'm talking to my wife, hey, is it I'm like, oh, look, I'm just not, I like, we're like we're not now like we just don't need to pull it in and all these things because i'm going to go to the board meeting and just say hey guys let's run and invest in these initiatives as opposed to like the the personal sacrifice that i'm going to so the conflict is insane when you're trying to swap between executive to board member to shareholder like it's crazy yeah it's it's super interesting (laughs) very interesting because a lot of a lot of business owners don't elevate their thinking to that level like even if they are in fact the board and the ceo and the whatever (laughs) the do i have a job in the business hat i've been wearing that for a while i'm like cool got it but we've been investing so much in innovation over the last few years and it was only like a few months ago where i was like hang on a second all of that innovation is effectively dividends which the shareholders which just happen to be the people owning and running the business decided to reinvest in innovation. Oh, that's super interesting. Do the shareholders want to continue to invest 100% of their dividends in innovation in the next 12 months? Oh, that's a very interesting question. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, just a, re- it's a complete reframe, right, yeah. of what most people would just assume is just a continuation on. It's like, no, well, yeah. obviously you just want to continue, Goose. Yeah, yeah, totally. If you could go back and start again, what would you do, what would you do or what would you, what would you do differently? I'm not a competitive guy at all. A goose and so like when i look back at like my two friends that have been punching at their businesses for like 15 20 years um and then like another mate who's been investing uh, quite heavily outside of their business a mutual friend of ours hi charlie um and then i look at a lot of the things that i did where dude i've invested way too much money in businesses and i've got i'm fortunate enough to have a good amount of dollar equity sitting in businesses knock on wood if they all sold the approach that i would take two things first I would stick with something that I kind of enjoy. I don't need to love it, but kind of enjoy that has a business model that spits out what I want as my goal, aka if I want to generate X amount of profit per month, have an exit goal of a billion dollars to you, whatever, it doesn't really matter as long as it does that. And I would stick with it and I would tweak it to the point that I want it to be tweaked, right? So I would just go, this is the business I'm going to run and it will be a 10, 20 year run. And the reason that I would do that is just because of this compounding uh, the more to your point, like if you run an inch in 12 different directions, like you're not going to make it very far compared to if you run 12 inches in one direction. So to be the first thing is like stick with the one thing. Second one would be business is a volatile game. Like every single business that I'm involved in, every single business that I coach or mentor or otherwise 
they change and have challenges every day. And so if you can bank some wins along the way and actually build wealth outside of the business, that is like the greatest approach and again, not financial advice, et cetera. But in my opinion, like that is the best way to mitigate the risk that is business and the game that you play forever. Because let's face it, it can all disappear and end up as nothing tomorrow. And then smell the roses along the way. Like some of the best experiences and, and memories that I have are like the steak dinners of like celebrating wins or like every time I have like a big event, like I'll buy like a watch for myself. It doesn't have to be an expensive watch, but I can look at all these watches and just like, that's when I sold out of a business that was valued at seven figures or eight figures. That was when I got married. That's when I did these things. And just like appreciate the journey because you're going to be doing it for decades on end. That is super interesting. A couple more questions. How do you think about lifestyle design specifically as it relates to consciously, we talked about designing business models, but when you think about consciously designing what your optimal kind of like life looks like, you know, the ratio of work to leisure, the ratio of travel to stay at home, the like all of these kind of things. And and there's no lifestyle design to me, just to be clear, is not working for four hours a week and sitting on a beach somewhere and doing all that kind of stuff, right? That is it could be. But certainly that's not what it is to me. So they know what it is Tim, to me. Tim Ferriss did yeah. so well with the name Tim, of that book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even though in the book it actually doesn't it actually doesn't actually say you work four hours a week. It's just like theoretically you could kind of do that if you kind of did these kind of things and had these kind of aspirations, baby. So um, it's a great book. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Great book though. I love the book. The concept to me is about making really conscious choices around what your the, the operating model of your life looks like. And how are you how are you thinking about that for yourself? That's a deep question. I love it. So I'll start out with a big pain that I had. So I'm unfortunately fortunate to be someone who loves strategy and solving problems. And so the introduction into business as the forever problem to solve was the greatest curse and blessing I ever got given because I literally eat, sleep and breathe problems and challenges, whether they're my own or something else that someone else has sent to me. And so like for me personally, I just, I know I wake up every day thinking about problems and trying to solve problems, et cetera. And so for me, I just know that's part of my lifestyle. The challenge was on the other side, like I've been through working 80 hour weeks, 100 hour weeks, sleeping on the office floor whilst people are deploying stuff overseas and everything like that. And I'm like, that's not what I enjoy. That's like too much work. So there is a point with having that disease where there is too much work. More recently, I've kind of stopped and I've thought about, well, what do I actually enjoy in life, Goose? what is the thing that actually brings me happiness? And most people, and I've talked to quite a few people about this, and most people respond with travel, spending time with family, going and playing golf. And it's been something that I've just had to really reflect on myself of going like, what is the thing that actually genuinely brings me joy? Like, is and is there anything? And it actually took me a while to try to figure out what it is. And I still don't think I've landed on it. I think it's more of an iterative process where I know I enjoy reading books. I know I enjoy thinking. Like every day I'll, I'll read a book. Every day, uh, not a book, like I'll read some part of a book. Every day I'll think, I'll have thinking time where I just sit down and I just think about a specific problem. Every day I want to be reviewing investments, reviewing businesses to try and improve them. But outside of that, what do I enjoy? And so that's where I've, I've recently picked up golf. And so I'm playing golf Mondays, Fridays and trying to bring that in for a third day. Um, I'm trying to not be in front of the computer as much thorough enjoyment when I'm not in front of the computer. It's more of a 
come on, Grant, go and get some sunshine, you <laughs> white pasty ghost. And I'm actually sort of still on the journey to try and figure out. Like, I think I've got another 12 months before little Grant will run around this world, maybe. Yeah, so I'm trying to figure out, like, what would the enjoyment piece be? And yeah, I'm just testing out everything because I just don't think, I don't think anyone's figured it out the perfect solution to what happiness really is, except for just living life the way it is. And I'm going to flip this around because I'm actually curious, like what outside of business and investing as a concept, what are the things that you do on a given day or given weeks that actually bring your happiness and fulfillment? It's a really good question. Um, somebody asked me recently, uh, what, what makes me excited? And I couldn't really answer it. I couldn't really answer it because I, 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 and I don't want to sound like I am an emotionally stunted kind of person. I'm really not. Um, no, we both are. It's fine. Just call a spade a spade. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we are. Okay, we are. So, <laughs> you know, whenever we hit a massive milestone in business, I'm not like, Yahoo, let's all go out. Let's, woo, let's celebrate. I'm like, that's cool. And then just Next. move on. Like I, I literally, yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like, it's like sweet. And I have to kind of turn it on because there's people in the team who are like, they want to save at that moment. So I'm like, okay, I need to do the thing because they need that. That's what I need to do for them. Got it. Me yeah. personally, internally, I'm like, sweet, cool. Right. Next. Good. I remember the first time we hit like a, a million dollars in revenue in a, in a year, big milestone for a business. And I was like, huh, that's cool. All right, cool. Crack on and, and next. That was about as long as the celebration lasts. <laughs> uh, vice versa, the shit could be massively hitting the fan, which it does in business. Business is volatile. We've nearly died a few times. And yes, there is a degree of stress, but at the same time, it's kind of like, huh, well, that's kind of suboptimal. So what are we going to do about it? So it's kind of like there's an emotional regulation piece that kind of sits in there. From a like a joy perspective, I I'm like you, man. I, I enjoy the I enjoy the pursuit. I I I am the kind of guy and I enjoy climbing mountains, like not rock climbing, but like, you know, trekking and stuff. I get more enjoyment out of each step walking up to the top of the mountain than I do from the view. I, I don't really have much interest. The view, I'm like, hey, yeah, cool, that's nice. But for me it's the it is the it is that kind of like it is the 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 journey it's not i don't want to say the grind because it kind of like puts it in the wrong context but i like the i like the pursuit so i've practiced lifestyle design quite a lot so with the reason that we you know live in bali travel a lot do all that kind of stuff that is me making conscious decisions to create greater levels of fulfillment in my life but around the context of like work not work all of that kind of stuff my optimal state would be to work seven days a week i love it i love it i i, I love it I'm so grateful for the all of the stuff that goes on and all the opportunities. Yes, sometimes it's overwhelming. Yes, sometimes I get burnt out. Yes, sometimes it's stressful. Yes, all of that kind of stuff. It's not like bliss every single day, but given a choice, I would choose to work seven days a week. I would choose to do that within a context that I have the opportunity to travel and do it from different places. I just actually get a real kind of like, for me, it's like, ooh, I'm doing this thing and I've got my, I am on a beach this week. Ooh, cool. Ooh, I'm doing this thing and I'm, uh, I'm on a plane. Ooh, I'm doing this thing and I'm in Sydney. Wow. Ooh, I'm doing this thing. And I'm, so, and like, so I like the change of context around that and the opportunity to continue to solve challenges and, and problems. So that's kind of what it is for me. And the more, once I got comfortable with that, I was like, oh, okay, that's okay. So it is okay for me to, that's the thing that would give, that gives me joy. I don't want to, I love reading, I love studying, I love learning, I love doing all of that kind of stuff, but it's all within the context of how do I develop myself to be better, to develop a business, to be better to solve more problems. It's problem solving. Even personal development is problem solving. Even personal development is like, okay, so I've like I've reached a ceiling in some part of myself, either emotionally, spiritually, metaphysically, whatever the case may be, and I want to get to some other stage of that. So how do I get past that? That's the problem solving piece. Or I want to 
to do, learn a new strategy either for personal interest, but that interest is probably like, you know, like this, this podcast, for example, this is an experiment for me. I'm like, okay, I want to, I want to like explore creating more content around business type topics where I, where I have an interest and I want to go on this journey and feel that out. That's a, that's a personal development thing as much as it is potentially a business thing down the line type, type scenario. So that's kind of what it is for me. And I think, um, you know, and it's different, it's different for everyone else, but I've had to really like think about like, what are my values and stuff? Family is not one of my values. It's, isn't it interesting that, so I did the Tim Ferriss, like live overseas thing. So when I had a digital agency, I had a team of like 25 people in the Philippines. I moved to the Philippines for seven years. I was there and every day I'd go to the gym, do yoga, meditate, do some work, go eat out, go and do a bit of work, be on the beach. Like, and it was just that kind of on repeat. And it was like the thing that everybody dreams of, I had, and I'm like, yeah, it's not that great. <laughs> and so like, I was then chasing some kind of like legacy thing because everything's appealing for a short period of time until you do it. And so a lot of the things that I'm trying, it sounds like you're very similar, like trying to push towards is what is the thing that I will enjoy doing for the next season of my life or for the rest of my life that will just continue to challenge me. Uh, hence why I like golf because I'm like, I don't think anyone's really good at golf. I just think everyone's just less bad. And so I'm like, well, I could just never perfect this thing. Yeah. Love it. Love it. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. Hey, I've got one final question and you may not, you may or may not be ready for this, but what is one contrarian belief that you hold to be true? What's something that you, that is a contrarian thought that you carry that you know is true that potentially other people might not agree with you or the masses? So I reckon, reckon one of the contrarian views for business owners specifically is that the way that you become financially free is through leverage. And I think that that's a false fallacy. I think that there is, there are way too many people in business that have become very wealthy and very successful and don't actually work that hard that have horrific leverage that actually utilize leverage slash compound or lack of leverage slash compounding value. And that actually leads them to an outcome. And so I think that there's this forever game of how do I get more leverage through automation, through code and through um, content and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I actually don't think it's as big as everybody thinks it is compared to the value of like actual compounding. Is that contrary yeah. enough? I, no, I, I like it. I like it. No, I think it is. I think it is true. Um, a little anecdote off the back of that. A friend of mine who had like a online coaching type business group coaching, high, info products, group coaching, a very high margin, like 90%, 90% profit type thing. And so what was funny though, is he was, he wanted to get more leverage, right? So I was talking to him, I was out for dinner with him and he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy a, I'm going to buy a SaaS company. I'm going to buy a software as a service company because I want reliable cash flow. I want reliable margins. And I was like, well, I'm not sure that you've got the right end of the stick there, right? Because, because most of the time they're a cash sink for a very long time. And also, guess what? Like you're going to have to pay a massive premium for that. And you're, which is probably going to deplete the cash flow. You do realize you actually have an extremely high cash flow business right now that you only have to work four hours a week in. Like it's like, like, uh, yeah. so do you think that kind of like the quest for the golden God of leverage can actually lead people down the wrong? Leverage in the context of if it's strategically aligned with your business objectives and a delivery mechanism and all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I actually I actually agree with you. I think that you need to find a balance between operational leverage, which is effectively a kind of like a shortcut way of saying or a long way of saying efficient operations. 
right? You want to make sure that you're efficiently operating your business. And naturally, all growth requires some degree of leverage. You build team, team of leverage, right? So there's always leverage in there, but you shouldn't cut back the business to the bone in the quest to get objectively more leverage when you could actually get an objectively better outcome if you didn't pursue that so hard. So I think that's good. Like and it, was, that. it was funny, the the final piece that I put on top of it, which I just keep coming back to is like the, the goal specific. It's the second you understand what goal you're actually going for, you kind of stop just chasing this infinite game of leverage because it's like, well, financially, what am I actually pushing for? Because if you want stability, there's so many better ways than a SaaS company spoken from a guy who spent seven figures in building SaaS companies. Like, it's just... It's never the end all and be all. Uh, funnily enough, I actually moved from super high leverage businesses to lesser leverage businesses, just operating them in a better way because it actually and it actually led me towards the goals I'm going for quicker, easier, and faster with less stress. And so, yeah, I've had a lot of conversations with people who have either started or bought into a SaaS company, and they're just like, "Oh shit, I wish I knew this prior." <laughs> so it's just the yeah. forever quest of leverage over anything else. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, love that. Well, Grant, it's been awesome. This has been a great episode. I really appreciate your time. No, I appreciate you, Goose. Enjoy, buddy. Cool. See you soon. Bye.